Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. On the way, we'll discuss youth mental health. A coalition of pediatricians declared it a national emergency. But resources remain inadequate, and for those needing help, it can be a long wait. Mental health is also a concern among veterinarians. Suicide rates for those in the field is above the national average. We'll discuss that. Many health care providers say they're feeling burnt out, and they say low staffing is a key reason. We'll learn about Illinois' safe haven law that allows parents to give up their newborns. The Illinois State Police Director discusses what is known as clear and present danger reporting and how his agency has used it to prevent violence. And we'll hear about a special graduation ceremony, part of an effort to help people get their lives back on track. Those stories and more ahead on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The Illinois State Police say they're using clear and present danger reporting differently than they did a year ago. Alex Degman talked with the State Police Director, Brendan Kelly, who believes the tool is stopping major tragedies before they happen. Director Kelly, thanks a lot for joining me. So bring me up to speed. What is clear and present danger reporting? Who submits these reports? When do they do it? And what generally happens when state police receive those reports? If a member of law enforcement, say a local police department, observes some type of conduct by someone who is homicidal, suicidal, they can then report that. If they have a recent firearms purchase history, if they have a firearms identification card and they are a clear and present danger, they are revoked. And that revocation is reported back to the local law enforcement agency so they can make sure any firearms that individual has are placed within the proper custody. And these are the type of circumstances and the events leading up to those tragedies. And this clear and present danger tool is showing to be a very effective means of intervention and trying to prevent those type of tragedies. All right, so it sounds like the process has been around for a while, but now you're making more of an effort to use it to take guns away from folks in those situations and keep them from buying any in the future. How many of these reports have you gotten so far this year? The number of clear and present danger reports over the past year was about 10,000. About 4,000 of those are people that had FOID cards. And so a good number of the people that are coming through the clear and present danger reporting process are people that don't even have a Ford card. So we now hold those records. And when someone later comes to apply for the Ford card, we're able to stop them from doing so. That other 4,000 or so, those are people that had Ford cards. We do that revocation, and then we report it back to local law enforcement. And we'll either work it up with them and go get the firearms and make sure they're properly disposed of, or local, local law enforcement is taking a much bigger and more active role in doing that. Now, in all those cases, there have to be examples of a situation that could have gotten very bad very quickly. Are there any of those that you're willing to share? There's plenty of examples. Uh, a young person threatening to kill his grandparents. School administrators reporting to the Illinois State Police. A student uh, making threats to his fellow students and then making sure that clear and present danger is filed in that person's background so they can't have a firearm in the future. But also then working with the parents, going out to their house and making sure that that child doesn't have access to the adult's firearms. Local law enforcement is using it more. We'd like to see medical professionals use it more. School administrators are now using it pretty routinely, and it does make a difference. Have you gotten any pushback from this? Are there any folks expressing constitutional concerns to you? 
this is circumstances where people say, yes, obviously this person is dangerous. They're homicidal, they're suicidal. They should not have access to firearms. And in the event, some of those reports turn out to be wrong. We have some very strong due process in place. We have a records appeal process. We have a, a firearms identification review board now that did not exist a couple of years ago. I don't think there's been any time in the history of the United States where if someone was trying to kill someone or they're gonna to try to kill themselves, or they're doing something that shows that they're they're clearly present danger to everyone around them, that we should not be able to take those firearms and be able to properly dispose of them in a way that prevents someone from being a threat to others. The increased use of these clear and present danger reports came around shortly after the mass shooting in Highland Park last year. A report like that had been filed against the alleged shooter. Now, do you think that these rules that are in place now would have prevented that tragedy? I think it's unclear, and I think it's very difficult to be able to say that that's the case. And, and you know, you hope when you look back that maybe there's some lesson learned there that uh, some sort of process could have been in place to, to make a change. But we know that this tool is working now. It's having a real impact in, in real circumstances. I think we have an obligation to do everything we can to take every lesson we may have learned, even, even if it's speculative and even if it might be a bit of a reach. Let's see what we can do, and, and let's try as hard as we can. That's the Illinois State Police Director Brendan Kelly talking about a tool he says the state police are using to stop tragedies before they happen. A new report from Northwestern University is documenting Illinois' news deserts. Dave McKinney has more. Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism is out with a national update on the continuing disappearance of local news outlets, and the news for Illinois isn't good. Five counties in the state have no local news outlets. Another 33 have only one. Longtime journalist Tim Franklin is an associate dean at Medill. He says such news deserts typically see government spending increase, borrowing costs rise, civic participation drop, and corruption increase. We're talking about real tangible effects from this local news crisis that's happening all over the country, including in Illinois. Federal labor data shows Illinois currently has about 900 journalists, down 70% from 20 years ago. This is Dave McKinney. At least 137 babies have been relinquished at an Illinois hospital, police station, or firehouse since 2001. That's when the state's safe haven law went into effect. It's meant to cut down on unsafe infant abandonments. Dr. Annie Ranking is Director of Prevention Services at the Children's Home in Peoria. She spoke with Tim Shelley about how the law works. So the Illinois Safe Haven Law is essentially a law in Illinois, and it's been around for a while. Um, and it basically means that any caregiver can relinquish their child, no questions asked, within the first 30 days of life for a newborn, um, as long as they're healthy. Um, and it's just a way for caregivers who um, may not have wanted the baby in the first place or are finding, you know, life is difficult with a newborn, they may be experiencing trauma, that it's a way to um, keep a baby safe um, and give it to a place that will make sure that the, that the baby stays safe um, as you relinquish the baby in the first 30 days. And is it literally as I'm taking the baby to a police station or a fire station and I just leave them there and... Yep. Yep. So um, police stations and fire stations are safe haven locations. 
There are things called safe haven boxes, but essentially um, in many communities, there is a place at police stations, at fire stations, and at other places that it's literally kind of a box on the on the outside of the building. You open it up. It's a safe place to, to put an infant. Um, you close the box and then an alarm goes off on in somebody's house, in somebody's cell phone, the people who are in charge of the box, and they immediately go and take the baby out of, out of the box. Um, and so one of the reasons for the safe haven boxes is because to decrease shame, to decrease fear, um, to, to really kind of make it a seamless way to really provide a safe place for a baby who may be um, in a family who doesn't want them or in a family who just can't support the baby because of multiple reasons or resources they have. So what happens once the firefighter or police officer, they let's say they open up the box, there's a baby in there. I mean, what happens from there? You, you know nothing about this baby, right? You don't know their name. You don't know where they came from. Yep. What happens? In most communities, the, what will happen is the baby will obviously get a, a medical look over. They'll, they'll go to the hospital, see a doctor, see a pediatrician, make sure that they are healthy. And then essentially they will enter the foster care system or be put up for adoption. So um, to find a loving home for that, for that baby to, to be raised in and to be loved um, in a family that have the resources and support that can raise that child. How, how common is it for uh, people to you know, leave their babies in a safe haven? Illinois has seen an increase in um, people relinquishing their babies under the Illinois safe haven law. And the reason for that increase is somewhat political. Um, So because states that surround Illinois increased the restrictive nature of their abortion laws, um, preventing women from having abortions who may not want to raise their children, so then they're forced to have children. Um, and then they don't. They still don't want to to raise the child or have the baby, and so they're bringing it to a state that has this safe haven law, which is Illinois. So, especially on the borders of Illinois, um, especially on the northern border, there's a lot, a huge increase of um, people kind of bringing their babies to Illinois and then relinquishing them under our Illinois safe haven law. Um, so, we're also seeing an increase in central Illinois, but also just making sure people are aware that it is possible and um, that this is an option that this baby can find a loving home um, with with a family that may be able to have more resources, more support, whatever the case may be, that that there are options um, and that uh, that we are knowledgeable and non-judgmental if that's an option that families choose. When you're having those conversations, you, you've mentioned judgmental a couple times. Is that a challenge to kind of help people understand why this happens a little more? Yeah, I think that um, thinking of the of the judgmental is really a place of not knowing, right? Um, Not knowing that this law exists, that the law exists to to save babies, right? To save babies um, in whatever your definition of saving a baby may be and decreasing the stigma around it's okay if you don't want to raise your baby. Um, there are people with loving households who will raise who will raise the baby um, in a safe and loving environment. And so, just making sure that the stigma is decreased um, to know that this law is in place to create that that safe place for for families to know that there are multiple options. So this actually falls under 
kind of the umbrella of what's known as UNSS, or Universal Newborn Support Services. So home visiting, which is one of the things that Children's Home provides, is part of Universal Newborn Supports. But also this idea of the safe haven law is we want to make sure that the baby is safe and whatever that means for that baby. It may mean relinquishing them. It may mean getting home visiting. It may mean other resources. But this is just kind of one of those other kind of branches that is, that is offered under that UNSS. Dr. Annie Ranking with the Children's Home in Peoria. She spoke with Tim Shelley about the state's safe haven law. Well, two years ago, a coalition of some of the country's top pediatricians declared the youth mental health crisis a national emergency. Peter Medlin heard from families and care providers about how challenging it is for children to access the mental health support they need. As a warning to listeners, this story talks about suicide. So if you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Na is 14 years old. She loves science and is a talented artist. She's creative and loves gaming. Over the past few years, she's also had a number of severe mental health challenges. She's been hospitalized and ultimately landed in an inpatient facility in another state, hundreds of miles from her home. Her mom, Brittany Cotton of Rockford, says that every step of the way, youth mental health services have been inconsistent, inadequate, or unavailable. This whole situation, with services being so difficult, the overall feeling is isolation. That is the hardest part of all of it, is feeling like you are the only one facing this alone. For many kids like Na, the first person to notice something is wrong is a teacher. Since the pandemic, the vast majority of public schools say they've seen an increase in students seeking mental health support. And schools have tried to step up in many ways. In Illinois, the state launched a hotline called Safe to Help that allows students to raise red flags about themselves or friends they're worried about. Students can take mental health days off from school, and many have used pandemic relief funding and secured federal grants to hire more counselors, social workers and school psychologists. Genevieve Maltby is a school social worker at the Harlem School District in McChesney Park, and she says they've seen an increase in student need, but not an increase in staff to meet that need. So social workers like Maltby are forced to react to student incidents instead of proactively helping them before a major problem develops. It's a bit like triage in war. Because really, at the high school level, I don't have time to sit with a student for a lengthy amount of time. So it's really just about like getting in quick fixes. And that's not effective at all. Even with so many short-staffed, school-based support can be genuinely helpful. According to her mom, it was for Na. Schools would sit down and try to talk to her, try to work through things. Often, didn't work that way. They had to get me involved. But they would take more time to check in on her than any of the services we were involved in. Back at Harlem, Maltby says one misconception that people have is that school social workers commonly provide one-on-one behavioral therapy to students. At Harlem, they don't, but they do partner with community organizations and agencies so they can refer students out for therapy. Sometimes therapists from those agencies even come in and provide treatment at the school, but as Maltby says. Not as many as I think we should. I think that's an area that we could definitely provide more services for. But that being said, when we do offer that, it fills up quickly and then we're short-staffed again because they don't have the people either. That's another crucial point. 
even if kids are referred out for therapy, it might be a while before they actually see a therapist due to long wait lists. And if that child is in a mental health emergency and threatening their own life, advocates say that waiting can be very dangerous. Marshmallows Hope is a nonprofit in Rockford that provides youth mental health counseling and mentorship. Laura Kane is the founder and executive director, and she created Marshmallows Hope after her son Zachary died by suicide in 2018. The reason why Marshmallows Hope exists is because of the lack of services and the wait list that other entities in the community were struggling with. Three years ago, the organization started as a mentorship program for kids struggling with mental health. But then a child they were mentoring attempted suicide, and they couldn't get them into therapy for months. We had a second child who attempted, and then they couldn't get him into services until June. So six months of a wait list, right? That child reattempted again. But at that point, I petitioned Winnebago County, and I was like, we need to do something. I need a higher therapist. And Kane says those situations weren't outliers. It was six months wait on average to get them into therapy, and that's deadly. Those wait lists still exist, but groups in the Rockford area like Marshmallows Hope and the National Youth Advocate Program can provide immediate, short-term counseling while kids in crisis wait for long-term therapeutic options. Brittany Cotton says she wishes Marshmallows Hope had existed in early 2020 when Na needed help the most. At that point, they were caught up on wait lists, and then once they finally got a good therapist, staff turnover and inconsistent sessions made progress more difficult, especially as the pandemic was unfolding folding and COVID interrupted services. Kane says that the number of kids requiring mental health services has skyrocketed with the pandemic. They currently have nearly 170 children receiving services and 90% of those kids have attempted suicide. And she says that while the need has increased, the number of community support services has not. I'm Peter Medlin. Just ahead on Statewide, Peter will take a look at the struggle for kids who need inpatient services in some parts of Illinois. We are back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. In late 2021, a coalition of some of the country's top pediatricians declared the youth mental health crisis a national emergency. Peter Medlin continues his reporting on youth mental health, this time focusing on the struggle for kids to access inpatient mental health care in northern Illinois. As a warning to listeners, this story talks about suicide. So if you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Na is 14 years old, and she loves science and is a talented artist. She's creative and loves gaming, too. And over the past few years, she's also had a number of severe mental health challenges. She's been hospitalized and ultimately landed in an inpatient facility in another state, hundreds of miles from her home. Her mom is Brittany Cotton of Rockford. It's a terrifying time to try to get help and more and more children. Advocates say that the number of kids requiring mental health services has skyrocketed with the pandemic. In Rockford, at the nonprofit Marshmallows Hope, for example, they currently have nearly 170 kids receiving services. And 90% of those children have attempted suicide. But people like Laura Kane, the founder of Marshmallows Hope, which provides youth mental health counseling and mentorship, says that while the need has increased, the number of community support services has not. 
There have been a few improvements, but overall, Kane sees the Northern Illinois community in worse shape now than before the pandemic, especially when it comes to inpatient services. That's the number one need. We have nowhere for kids in our local community to go to an inpatient hospital stay if they're in high crisis like that. Mercy Health closed their inpatient mental health unit at Javon Bay Hospital in Rockford. Medicaid doesn't often cover inpatient youth mental health services unless the child has a co-occurring substance use disorder. Rosecrans is a behavioral health treatment center in Rockford, and they used to have funding to help provide youth inpatient care without substance use. Sadie Cobio is the assistant administrator of community behavioral health services at Rosecrans, and she says a change in the center's funding source has made that more complicated. So our residential services are specific to primary substance use, which honestly goes back to like the funding source. So Rosecrans is happy to provide the service for either. Um, from a funding perspective, they really have to be primary substance use. Kane at Marshmallows Hope says there also just aren't enough beds at hospitals like Swedish American either. So when a child is in crisis and needs to be hospitalized, even when they have a plan and the means, sometimes there's nowhere to send them. Amber Shepard is the engagement specialist with the Rockford Mobile Crisis Response Team, part of the National Youth Advocate Program. And she agrees with that. We don't have it really anywhere to send them to because resources are, are so limited. Brittany Cotton says her daughter Na has been turned away because of a lack of beds, and it nearly happened again this year when she needed to be hospitalized because of her mental health. We've been told that beds were completely full in like four different hospitals when Swedish American would check. They were always full, um, so we got lucky. This year, we got lucky um, to get her in because every other year they were completely full. Her daughter was in the hospital for about two weeks. And after she was released, Cotton knew that she needed the full-time support of a residential center. And without inpatient services available locally, Cotton, like so many, was forced to explore sending her daughter to an out-of-state facility. But to do that, she not only needed to figure out which one she could pay for and which was the best equipped to handle her daughter and was in a place that she felt somewhat comfortable with, they also had to deal with even more wait lists. Once again, it took months. And trying to work out which facility might work for your child's needs, it's really hard. In general, Cotton says maneuvering between services and making sure everyone knows the medications her daughter's on and what the diagnoses are, it's a huge burden on parents and caregivers. And she says making sure agencies, insurance companies, and hospitals have the right documents can feel like a full-time job in and of itself. And it's on top of the stress and worry about her daughter's well-being. As a parent, you will have to do paperwork as if you're going to be facing a criminal case. I swear you do. And after months of waiting and after time in the hospital, she finally got Na into a residential center a few months ago. It's in Missouri hours away from her family and her friends. We get a 10-minute conversation at night, nightly, if I'm lucky. And it hasn't been a great experience, but it is round-the-clock support. And Cotton says they've been told now I'll be home in six months, but she's not sure. And when she does get back, she knows her daughter will still need support. She's still just a teenager. And while she's grateful for the community organizations she's found during this journey, she thinks more people should know about what services are available. And Cotton says there needs to be a lot more investment in youth mental health resources for both kids and their families. Because whether that investment comes or not, the youth mental health crisis isn't ending anytime soon. I'm Peter Medlin.
A recent survey from the Centers for Disease Control shows healthcare professionals are feeling burned out. Nearly half of those surveyed admitted to burnout, another half say they're considering a new profession. Melissa Ellen reports on how some hospitals are trying to support workers. Healthcare professionals care for others. It's in the job description, not in that job description, hero. But Joliet-based nurse Beth Corsetti says that's a burden the public gave to first responders during the pandemic. She says the label has done harm. With that term hero comes along a lot of feeling of responsibility, a lot of feeling of guilt, feeling that we're, we're without anyone to turn to who's going to be our heroes, who's going to help us. Corsetti says what nurses are feeling goes beyond burnout. They call it moral injury because of the mental-emotional toll. It started during the pandemic and lingers still. We weren't necessarily prepared for the moral injury and the feelings of distress and trauma. And, you know, I I hate to even use the term PTSD, but, you know, it, it does have a lot to do with what we went through. Corsetti says nurses were asked to be everything to patients. Chief Nursing Officer Jennifer Crowland says being a healthcare professional demands a lot of people, pandemic or no pandemic. You could be giving somebody a terrible diagnosis and then walking into the room of somebody else and sharing with them that maybe their disease is getting better or that they can go home. Crowland is also the vice president of patient care. She works at OSF St. Francis Medical Center in Peoria. Crowland and nurse Beth Corsetti speak to a national issue, a burnout crisis among healthcare professionals that even the CDC is trying to fix at this point. They've launched the Impact Wellbeing campaign. It provides guidance to hospitals for how to decrease burnout. Recommendations include a well-being questionnaire for staff. At a more local level, OSF Healthcare and Carl Health say they are both doing their part in the effort. Tony Coletta is the vice president of human resources for Carl. He says they've started asking more questions. What do they see in the environment? What are their thoughts about how we can best support them and create systems, processes, resources to help them manage through? Coletta says Carl wants to support its healthcare professionals. They offer a GED program. They had a well-being conference recently, and they highlight exemplary staff often. Carl and OSF are also restructuring benefits packages to better care for workers. At OSF, there are mental health days. When someone needs a break, they don't have to use sick days or vacation time. Chief Nursing Officer Jennifer Crowland says OSF is also paying close attention to workplace violence, which can contribute to burnout. Other people may get hurt at work, but it's because of an accident or a piece of machinery. Healthcare workers get hurt at the hands of another person. Crowland says OSF is ahead of the curve in its research and prevention measures for workplace violence. At the same time, hospitals are still seeing widespread staffing shortages. There's just as many sick patients today as there were in 2018, but we, we have had a shrinking workforce. Better employee benefits can be enticing, but no one has figured out a solution yet. For nurse Beth Corsetti, change needs to come soon. I'm not one to say that I'm going to give up and quit the bedside, but it's, it's getting to that point. Corsetti says she's overwhelmed. She's scared. She needs more nurses and health professionals to help her at the bedside. I'm Melissa Allen. Being a veterinarian and helping animals, large and small, can bring a lot of joy. 
But Side Effects Public Media's Anna Spidel reports from Missouri the job also comes with a host of stressors that affect veterinarians' mental health. A warning to listeners, this story contains discussion of mental illness and suicide. Veterinarians are between two to four times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. The truth is, I mean, there's, there's a host of factors that can play into it. That's Kerry Carafa. His office is equipped with a white noise machine that runs in the background. The goal is to make it as soothing and private as possible when he counsels veterinary students at the University of Missouri. Carafa is an embedded psychologist there, and he researches mental health in veterinary professions. Some cultural facets that we have identified in, in research are things like um, perfectionism. Perfectionism is something that vet student Megan Lawler experiences firsthand. She's a third-year student at MU. She received her white coat and recently started clinical rotations this fall. She started seeing Carafa during her first year. She says he helped her through a tough time. As a veterinary student, you're striving to still get the best grades and be president of all these clubs. And then it carries on into being a practicing veterinary professional where you're being not only a caretaker for people's pets, but also their counselor. Veterinarians, much like pediatricians, treat patients who cannot fully communicate how they feel or what hurts. They also have to attend to worried parents who need answers. This can all add to the stress. Taylor Miller was a small animal veterinarian and is now a mental health counselor. She is also an advocate for Not One More Vet. It's an organization that works to promote mental well-being among veterinary professionals. Miller pushes back against common misconceptions. One of them is that performing euthanasia is the driving factor behind the stress and high suicide rates in the field. Consistently, in practice, despite the grief of a euthanasia, I often found my euthanasia appointments to be the most rewarding. And in those moments, I could make a terrible moment as positive as possible. Obviously, I did not enjoy losing animals. I did not enjoy causing death. But I felt aligned with my clients. I felt, I felt like I was doing the right thing for my, my pets. There is not conclusive data to suggest that performing euthanasia is a driving factor in veterinary suicides. But studies found that access to euthanasia solution may play a part. Poisoning was the most common mechanism of death among veterinary professionals who died by suicide or in a manner undetermined, according to one study. And most of these incidents happened outside the workplace, at home. Once researchers controlled for access to euthanasia drugs, veterinarian suicide rates were not much different than the general public. Experts say there's a need for broad and serious discussions around changing access to euthanasia drugs. The profession, when you bring this topic up, they kind of stop talking about it because they're like, well, my situation, we can't do that because of X, Y, Z. That's Suzanne Tomasi. She's an epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Institute for Occupational Health and Safety. Tomasi was a practicing veterinarian. She says, unlike human medicine, the vet world doesn't have gatekeepers like pharmacists. It's the veterinarian that prescribes and dispenses the medication. Some proposed solutions include putting stickers with crisis hotline numbers inside of drug lockboxes or implementing a two-person system of accessing the drugs. But she said many veterinarians push back against controlling access to the drugs because they worry it will impact how quickly they can get to them in case of emergency. In my mind... I couldn't think of any scenario I had ever been in in clinical medicine where I needed access to euthanasia solution quickly. 
Tomasi says that cultural changes to improve mental health and reduce job stressors should be the focus. But it's important to include access to lethal means in the conversation for people who are already experiencing a crisis. I'm Anna Spital, Side Effects Public Media. The Mississippi River is a transportation powerhouse. Some 60 percent of U.S. grain exports float down the river along with plenty of soybeans. But a lot of the infrastructure that supports shipping is old and needs updating. Eric Schmidt reports some are wondering if investments are worthwhile given how climate change is affecting the Mississippi. On a recent sunny day near St. Louis, a towboat slowly maneuvers 15 barges tied together down the Mississippi. The whole vessel is about a quarter mile long, and the barges are filled with either animal feed or oil products. But barges can move a lot of other goods, too. Rubber, scrap metal, resin for polymers like paints, varnishes, glues. Paul Rohde is the Midwest Region Vice President for the Waterways Council, an organization that advocates for barge transportation. It's all about capacity. He says it would take more than a thousand semi-trucks to carry the same load as 15 barges. Barges move products with a, a much lower carbon footprint than rail, or certainly trucks. Rody cites a Texas A&M study from 2022 that finds overall the carbon footprint of barge shipping is nine times smaller than trucking, and it's about half that of rail, which is why Rody says we need to ship more things by barge. But Olivia Dorothy with American Rivers isn't as sure. She says that system-wide analysis of emissions misses the nuances of moving goods on different waterways. Just like cars, you've got different fuel economies and emissions when you drive in the city versus when you drive on the highway. And we believe that's the same thing for our rivers. These are important distinctions, Dorothy says, because the Mississippi River changes a lot. For example, going downriver here near St. Louis, it's the last place where barges go through a lock and dam. The lock is like an elevator. Barges going downstream come in and are lowered to the water level in front of the dam. It's a process that takes time, and in terms of carbon emissions, it's sort of like a truck idling at a toll booth. And it's one reason the environmental advantages are in question. But Dorothy says there's another reason, too. These dams that we have to facilitate navigation are themselves emitting large amounts of methane. She says they slow down the river's flow, meaning things like leaves, tree limbs, dead fish, or algae settle in the riverbed and break down. If that sediment is disturbed by anything, that methane then becomes released into the atmosphere. But just how much of the greenhouse gas isn't clear. No one's ever done the mass balance. Jonathan Remo is a professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale who studies how humans affect large rivers. He's working on a model of the methane emitted from the dozens of locks and dams along the Mississippi north of St. Louis. Without that information, Remo says we don't have a full picture of how green barges really are. Not having the complete information is like getting a loan and not having what the uh, interest rate is. And it's not just the Mississippi River with locks and dams. Rivers like the Illinois and Ohio, even the Columbia and Lower Snake in the Northwest have them too. Many of them are in dire need of updates or repairs. The federal government is spending billions of dollars on infrastructure for ports and waterways to keep these transportation systems running. 
Remo says he hopes his research will be a tool to help manage our rivers and other countries. That may want to develop their rivers like we have here in the United States and have a whole cost accounting of what that could potentially mean for their greenhouse gas footprint. He says it's a way to know with more certainty if barges are a solid climate solution for the shipping industry. I'm Eric Schmid in St. Louis. You're listening to Statewide. We have more to come. Stay right here. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. During the pandemic, most colleges stopped requiring students to submit standardized test scores, and in many cases, those policies are here to stay. But admission officers are placing more emphasis on signs of rigor on transcripts like calculus. It's long been considered one of the most difficult courses a high schooler can take, and it can be an easy way to sort students. But the problem is, some who haven't taken it may have never had the chance. Lisa Phillip reports. Jose Arias is a high school math teacher, and even he didn't take calculus in high school. I don't know if I knew how to work that game as well as others. The college admissions game, he means. Hardly any colleges explicitly require calculus, but the perception is out there that calculus is the gold standard of course taking for high school students looking to get into selective schools, even for those not planning to major in math-related fields. There's a small but growing group of people challenging this idea. They say it disadvantages students of color. Like Arias, he immigrated to the U.S. with his mom when he was 12. He had to learn English. I had to work really hard just to get placed or just to reach regular level classes. I didn't know that they're going to look at a transcript and look at that I didn't have calculus in my transcript. I know that my mom did not know those things. To take calculus in high school, students have to get placed on an accelerated math track by eighth grade. Federal data shows Black and Latinx students are less likely to be placed on that track than white and Asian students. And there's another catch. Students have to attend a high school that offers calculus. That's half of all high schools, according to the U.S. Department of Education, and just over a third of schools serving predominantly Black and Latinx students. These stats get Melody Baker riled up. Just off the bat, you're you're cutting off so many underserved minorities just because their high school doesn't offer it. Baker is the national policy director for Just Equations. It's a nonprofit working toward equity in math education. The group surveyed admissions officers around the country about the role that calculus plays in evaluating students. Nearly four out of five said faculty at their institutions place a high priority on calculus as a sign of rigor on high school transcripts. Baker sees calculus not as a sign of rigor, but of privilege. Federal data shows that wealthy students are four times more likely to take calculus than low-income students. Calculus, for all intent and purposes, is a status symbol. Taking calculus or abstract math, it doesn't make you any more intelligent than someone who is taking AP English or AP World History. Baker says calculus needs to be made more accessible. But also, she says, selective colleges need to take it off a pedestal and consider other math courses in its place. Arias agrees. The math teacher eventually took calculus in college. Now he teaches a far less traditional math course to seniors at Evanston Township High School in the north suburbs. You can just do a picture or whatever it is that you're, you want to include in that name tag. It's a design thinking class. Students can take it after going through the traditional math track geometry, algebra, maybe pre-calculus. On a recent date, they're grouped around large tables discussing how to solve a real-world problem, and they're using the analytical skills they learned in previous math classes to do so. 
This week's challenge is to improve relationships between students and safety officers at their school. Arias tells students their next steps. By the end of today, you should have a prototype of this solution. Senior Ari Searcy is planning a basketball game for students and safety officers. She's trying to figure out a way to foster discussion between the two groups. Or like having time where they can like go sit out and then like be like, oh, so like, what did you like about like playing against them? Or like, what do you think could like went differently? Some observers may not recognize this as math. And the people reading applications to selective colleges may not put it on the same level as calculus. Arias, the teacher, thinks that's unfair. It just looks different. And you're still solving that problem. It's just not using perhaps those formulas and, and numbers. It's just using your critical thinking, your problem solving skills, your collaboration to come up with ideas to solve this problem. To Arias, there is no better preparation for college and the real world. He hopes one day more admissions officers might agree with him. Lisa Phillip, WBEZ News. People leaving the Cook County Jail are now eligible to get free state ID cards on their way out. Sheriff Tom Dart says IDs are critical in helping people reintegrate into society and stay out of jail. According to Dart, about 2,300 people currently being held in jail need IDs. He says his office has been trying to get a program like this off the ground for 15 years. The pilot program is a partnership between the county and the Illinois Secretary of State. It will start by giving IDs to people released on electronic monitoring. Northwestern University recently held a ceremony to mark a group of students getting their bachelor's degrees. It's a unique group, as Deepa Fernandez explains. That's the sound of some of the newest graduates of Northwestern University. They're a group of incarcerated people who studied for their bachelor's degree during some of the most challenging moments of the pandemic. Among the speakers at the commencement was Illinois Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton. This graduation is a testament to the power of education to transform lives and provide hope for a better future. At the same time, it highlights the importance of providing access to education for all individuals, regardless of their circumstances. The cohort is the first to graduate from the Northwestern Prison Education Program. Last year, 400 incarcerated men from across Illinois applied to participate. And after a competitive interview process, just 40 were offered admission. Joining us now is the program's founding director, Jennifer Lackey. Jennifer, welcome to Here and Now. Thank you for having me. So I'm so curious about this group of students. Tell us about them and, and how did they manage to study and do a bachelor's degree while they were incarcerated? So I think it was said um, by our commencement speaker, Tanahasi Coates, that this was the most decorated class that he had ever you know, come into contact with. So we have students um, who have taken the LSAT. One of our students was the first incarcerated person in Illinois to take the LSAT while incarcerated. Mm -hmm. We have students who have published in The New Yorker, who have had their plays performed at the Goodman Theater, you know, who have had poetry and um, articles accepted for publication. So it's an incredibly talented group of students. 16 of them graduated 
and we have 100 students in our program across Illinois. And the LSAT is the exam you take to get into law school? Correct, yes. Now, the program at Northwestern is is fairly new. How does it work? So... Now that we're on the other side of the pandemic, we have faculty members who drive to Stateville Correctional Center, which is in Crestville, Illinois. Our classes are about three hours once per week. And so we have four cohorts of men at Stateville. So we have courses running. They Each cohort takes three courses a quarter. So we have 12 courses running per quarter at Stateville. Okay. I imagine it's kind of tricky because you don't have access to the internet when you're incarcerated. You you know, how, how do you get materials? How do you do the work? So we, um, we rely heavily on driving, you know, books and articles and papers to and from the facility and a lot of scanning and uploading to, you know, folders for our faculty members to access materials. The students, you know, we provide all of their materials in paper form and the students have a research request form that they can submit to our library at Northwestern. Okay. And then librarians will do some research for them, make photocopies of all of the articles, and then send them back into the prison. And what are the benefits of this for both people who are incarcerated and, and for Northwestern? So, I mean, there's all sorts of empirical research that shows how recidivism rates um, dramatically decline for people who have engaged in post-secondary education while incarcerated. In fact, the higher degree, the lower the recidivism rate is. Um, There are all sorts of intergenerational benefits. So um, children of incarcerated parents who have participated in college and prison programs are far more likely to break the intergenerational cycle of poverty and incarceration. And we've also just witnessed tremendous community building on the inside. So, you know, we have students in our program who were in rival gangs 20 years ago and are now, you know, doing critical engagement on each other's work and reading each other's poetry. So there are tremendous benefits both on the inside and the outside. Wow. You know, Jennifer, I imagine there are challenges to sustaining something like this. We don't hear about education programs you know, from major universities inside of prisons. Can you talk a little bit about that? So there are challenges coming from multiple directions. Um, You know, it's challenging to get inside the facility. Um, You know, there's just a lot of barriers to, you know, bringing in materials, trying to, for instance, offer a chemistry course and trying to give incarcerated students comparable educational experiences to their on-campus peers when many of the items needed for a chemistry lab are not allowed. Mm. So we've had to pivot and be creative. We do um, some experiments uh, remotely. And so we have someone at home doing the experiments while the students watch via Zoom. So, you know, we really have to try to be creative in many respects, um, Mm. given the challenges that we face offering a full college program inside a facility that has maximum security students in it. Now, Stateville is multi-security. And Jennifer, I have to ask, what about people with a very long sentence who may not get out at all or anytime soon? Are they part of your program? Well, I think that, you know, this is a nice segue into the other um, group of students that we serve. And those are the students who um, don't expect to come home or um, unless there's going to be some changes in the law or they're granted clemency, they won't be coming home. And that was the population that I first started working with, the students with very lengthy sentences who had not had educational opportunities. 
And seeing the transformation that occurs within each of those students and that they bring to the community is really what inspired me. I always tell my fellow um, colleague, you know, academics and professors, that if you need to rekindle your love of education, they should come sit in one of our classrooms because there is no place where I have felt more intellectually alive than in the classrooms at Stateville and Logan, the two facilities that we work in. Tell me what it was that made you feel so alive, Jennifer. I mean, you've clearly been in very intellectually engaging environments. Why did this one make you feel so alive? I think that the students bring very unique experiences to the classroom. So um, I taught a class this last quarter and I brought some of our on-campus Northwestern students to the class at Stateville. And it was a course on punishment and incarceration. And one of our class periods was on solitary confinement, where we read, you know, social science literature on solitary confinement. And, you know, we looked at the, you know, kind of the psychological impact of solitary confinement. But then we sat in a circle and many of our students just voluntarily offered their own personal experiences of having endured solitary confinement for years or sometimes even decades. And, you know, there's such a unique perspective and such a hunger to learn about the experiences that many of them didn't understand prior to the classroom, that it really is life-changing for everyone in that space. So follow that through for me from an intellectual perspective, Jennifer, because it's one thing to share personal stories, uh, but but take that to a scholarly level. I mean, sociology, there's, there's many fields uh, in academia which have really studied things like solitary confinement. How do you then take someone's lived firsthand experience right there and, you know, take it to that next intellectual academic level? So there's a question over whether solitary confinement is cruel and unusual. And then to hear the firsthand experience of someone describe the psychological deterioration of day 27 in solitary brings the sense of what is cruel about solitary confinement and what is unusual about solitary confinement to an entirely new level that I think, you know, if the 20-year-old on-campus students in that class had just been reading about, never would have taken, it never would have, it would not have impacted them nearly as powerfully as it did to actually hear the firsthand stories that are, you know, supporting the empirical data. So, so in other words, the students are mixed with other students at Northwestern. Exactly. So every fall, for instance, we offer a course that brings about 10 law students to Stateville. And um, some of those classes are incredibly powerful. Yes. Such an interesting experience. Jennifer Lackey is founding director of the Northwestern Prison Education Program. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. We're out of time for Statewide. Thanks for being along this week. And don't forget to join us next time. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Find us where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. You can also search our shows through this station's website. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations. Bye.